Okay, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed and those who followed were afraid. He took the 12 aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the 10 heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's always painfully aware, no matter where you go in the United States, that the church has an attendance problem. Attendance uh, has been declining ever since the 1960s. This is not new information, but we've noticed it even over the past 20 years. In fact, the Barna Research Firm, which is a Christian organization looking into the church, says that back in the year 2000, uh, about uh, half the US population was active in a church. By the year 2020, that was down to a quarter of the U.S. population. Now, we know that part of this, of course, was the global pandemic, but it's a trend that's been going on for a while. Now, this, again, started happening in the 60s, and you may remember that in order to sort of reach new people, there was this Jesus revolution. If you've seen the, the movie that's out in theaters, that was sort of this Jesus movement that was going on during that time. It happened something similar in the 80s. In the 90s, there was a lot of Christian contemporary music that was created and on the radio. There was even something called a seeker-sensitive church movement where they took out the, the cross, took out all the tradition, and tried to reach 
people that had never grown up in church before. During the 20 years that we're talking about with Barna research though, a lot of churches tried to do what they, whatever they could to try to get people back in the church. Some churches tried to get everybody within their church to have the right theology, thinking that somehow that it was a theological problem. Some churches decided they were gonna try to be more relevant. And so they tried to preach sermon series that dealt with real, real world situations. Some churches went out and found themselves a new hip pastor to take over to try to reach new people. Don't get any ideas, Michael Bowman. What's interesting about all these things is that statistically they didn't make a difference. None of those things seem to make a difference. According to their research, the single most influential aspect of a church leading towards health and a vibrant future is its external focus. A church that is engaged in mission, especially in the local community, and a church that is invitational. It cares about the needs of the community. Uh, Church members go out and invite people to come to church and to come and see what's going on and to meet God face to face. These are the single most influential things that lead to vibrant churches and church growth over time. Isn't it interesting that the secret to church growth is to do what Jesus did? Jesus had a mission. He talked about it as the kingdom of God and he was going out to reach people, to meet people, to go to where they were and invite them to follow him or invite them to live a life that is more in harmony with God. He called his disciples and they followed him. He would go out to the hurting and the outcast. He didn't go into the synagogues really to try to get people there. He was going out into the world to lead people back to God. Jesus was laser focused, if you will, on reaching outcasts and saving sinners. Uh, Brennan Manning is an author that I have been reading this past week, and I wanted to share a quote with you about Jesus and his mission, what Jesus cared about in terms of his preaching on the kingdom of God. And this is that quote. There was a towering desire within Jesus to reveal his father in serving the poor, the captive, the blind, and all who were in need. Jesus was entirely devoured by this mission. This is Brennan Manning trying to give word or description to the heart of Jesus that he cared about real people, all people, and he wanted to see them connect with God. He had an external focus. Think about the times in scripture where the disciples or other people are telling Jesus he's wasting his time being focused on other people. The Pharisees complained that Jesus sat and ate with sinners and tax collectors, and they said he shouldn't be doing that. Think about when we baptize a child here in worship, we often refer to a scene where children were trying to come to Jesus, and the disciples were trying to stop the children from coming to him because they were afraid the children's sermon might go out of hand, you know? 
get out of hand. They tried to keep the children away, and Jesus said, no, let the children come unto me, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Jesus was externally focused because he had something vitally important that we all need. We need to know about God. We need to know about God's grace. We all need to realize that we are broken and in need of healing and repair by a loving God who wants nothing other than to call us his children. Jesus was a part of this mission. Jesus was a part of this kingdom of God and the mission of the church even to this day is the same as and is the continuation of the mission of Jesus. We cannot offer something that we did not create. We do not offer grace. We do not sacrifice ourselves for others. We share the grace that's been given to us. We invite people not to get to know great church people like us, but to come and to get to know Jesus in our midst. This is what the secret to church growth is, according to recent research, to have an external Jesus-like focus. And it's not a surprise to the disciples, or at least it shouldn't be, and yet over and over and over again, it is. If you were here last Sunday, no matter if you were in modern or here in traditional, you know that we read from the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, in which Peter, knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, gets bent out of shape when Jesus says that he must go and suffer and die. Peter thinks that Jesus being the Messiah is about taking over, being the, the rightful king of Israel and putting everything back the way it should be, defeating the Romans and sitting on some sort of throne, maybe even in Jerusalem. But that's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus is because of his external focus, looking to save people, not just throw down an occupational force like Rome. Peter doesn't get it. And much like Peter doesn't get it, James and John from today's passage do not get it either. Scholars say that the Gospel of Mark chapters 8 through 10 are primarily about two things. One is that Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah sent to give himself up for us. And the second thing is, is that Jesus tells us what discipleship is. And often when Jesus tells us what discipleship is, it's always externally focused. There is a cost to it. We must carry our cross. We must serve others. We must be a part of Jesus's mission. Following him means doing what he did. Jesus says as much a third time before our reading today. And then right after hearing this, as they're walking up to Jerusalem, and by the way, if you've ever read in scripture that people were always walking up to Jerusalem, no, no matter if they were coming from the north, south, east, or west, why are they always going up? Because Jerusalem is on a high altitude. It's high up on top of a mountainous area. And not only is it high up, but it is the sacred city. And so it is in reverence above everything else. So no matter where you are in scripture, you're always going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus and the disciples are going up to Jerusalem and they're having this conversation 
about what it means for Jesus to be the one who suffers for us all. And James and John are like two people that aren't really listening but are nodding their head, right? They're not hearing anything. They're just thinking about what is it going to be like when we get in control? And so they're hearing Jesus say that, and then they go up to him and ask Jesus, Jesus, we want you to give us whatever we ask for. Now, how many children have ever asked their parents this? Mom, dad, I I want something for my birthday. Can you give it to me? What is it? (laughs) You know? Uh, Because once we uh, find out that it's $2,000, we say, no, 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 you can't have that. James and John try this trick on Jesus. He doesn't allow it. He says, tell me what you're wanting. And James and John say they want to sit at his right hand and his left hand. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's actually their mother who goes and asks this question of Jesus. But James and John and Mark ask Jesus this question. And it's not a new question, or at least it's not a new idea. In fact, it's possible that James and John, being faithful Jews, knew of Psalm 110. We're going to put the words on the screen here. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is not only about James and John trying to get ahead of the other disciples, trying to become the greatest next to Jesus when he is in his throne, victorious with earthly glory and earthly power, which is not the mission of Jesus. But in a sense, they could be thinking, once we sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus for all of our enemies, it's payback time. You're going to be under my footstool. This is not really the way of Jesus, is it? And yet James and John are kind of showing their cards. They're wanting power. They're wanting greatness. They they want to be at the right hand and the left hand. And in Jewish culture, to sit at the right hand of someone is a seat of honor. Sitting at the left would be sort of your number three. Sitting at the right is the number two. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, like we say in the creed of Jesus, right? They wanted a place of honor. They wanted power. They wanted influence. They wanted to shine. But Jesus tells them he can't offer this. And he goes on to say, I'm not even sure you want this because they've not been listening. Whoever is with Jesus is probably going to suffer as well. This gets the disciples and Jesus into a little bit of an interesting moment because the other disciples get really upset. Can you imagine how Peter feels betrayed by these guys? He's supposed to be the number two. All of them feel like this is inappropriate, that they're cutting in line in in a sense. And, And Jesus starts to help them understand this is not about who's in power. Greatness has nothing to do with how much power or influence you have. Greatness, at least in the kingdom, is about serving other people. Jesus and his rule are about 
the external focus, the serving of others, not about how much influence and control we can yield. So, as we are thinking about what this means, think about what Jesus says next. He tells them that in the world around them, the people who are in power, the great people out there, they like to control other people. They like to lord over others. And he calls them tyrants. You know, I'm thinking about some of those evil fraternity brothers that we may have known of who treat their pledges like slaves, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that power goes to people's head. And they use this power in the world, that is, to lift themselves up and push other people down. Jesus just says this like it's common knowledge. People who are in control, they don't use it to help other people. They use it to get their way. And that's not the way of the kingdom of God. That's not my way. Jesus says, my way is serving others. My way is taking what power you have and making a difference with it. My greatness, true greatness, is in serving other people. It almost seems like there is this spiritual battle that Jesus is pointing out that is being demonstrated in James and John of self-centeredness versus self-sacrificial giving. Inward focus versus external focus. The way the world works is survival of the fittest, and in the way of the kingdom, it is the fittest do the most serving. These are the two options. Brendan Manning that I was uh, mentioning earlier in my sermon quoted from Dietrich Bonhoeffer these wonderful words that I think tie into what this battle, this spiritual struggle between self-centeredness and self-sacrifice looks like. And I know that you heard from uh, Pastor Michael last week about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I won't introduce you to him, but let's look at his words. He says, Satan's desire is to turn me in on myself to the extent that I become enslaved and become a destructive force in the community. The thrust from Jesus Christ is the opposite. To enhance my freedom so that I can become a creative force of love. It is the spirit of self-centeredness and selfishness versus the spirit of openness and self-sacrifice for the good of others. Those are the words of Bonhoeffer. You see the sort of spiritual battle going on. The forces of evil, the satanic forces are, are telling us that we need to be selfish and to take care of ourselves, that we need to ignore our neighbor. And the, for, the voice of the kingdom, the voice of Jesus is saying, love God and love neighbor. I've said this before, but St. Augustine once said that the, the destructiveness of sin is that we become curved in upon ourselves. He calls it incurvatus in C in Latin, curved in upon yourself. And when you curve in upon yourself and all you care about is yourself, you cut God and you cut others out of your life. Jesus' kingdom are externally focused. 
because this is the way to reach more and more and more people for the purposes of God. An inward focus pulls us away from people and it harms the kingdom. It can even harm a church. But an external focus can help people see that they matter to God and that they're not just a sinner out there on their own, but they have a father in heaven who sees them as precious and wants to have a relationship with them. Now, one of the things we might be afraid of is that if we have too much of an external focus, we won't think about our members, right? The people on the inside who matter just as equally to God. But the point is not to choose outsiders over insiders. The point is to be insiders who love outsiders just like Jesus does. It's about a change of all of our hearts, not about prioritizing others over some. Do you see? Jesus wants James and John and all the disciples to see and understand that the greatest among us, the true greatest among us, are those who reflect Jesus the most, the ones who look and act like Jesus and his mission are real and that they are the most important thing. So if we were to look in our church and ask, who's the greatest? Who might it be? Would it be the chair of the most important committees? Would it be the highest paid staff member? Would it be the biggest giver? Who are the true greatest in our church? Would it be the person who cleans up everybody else's dishes on a Wednesday night supper? What would be the person who goes to their neighbor who just recently lost their spouse and went with them to a grief support group? Would it be the person who went downtown to feed the homeless a meal? Are those the greatest people in the church? James and John felt like they, in terms of our culture now, that they belonged in City Hall or in Pennsylvania Avenue, right behind Jesus. But Jesus would have none of that. His church, his kingdom, will only grow when it is focused on the kingdom, when it is focused on people, when it is externally focused through serving others. The greatest in the church may be the most unnoticed until you've been helped and served and noticed by them. This is the way of God for the people who are willing to hear. Thanks be to God. Amen.